1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Landmark Hotel um, for a, what I hope is well, it will be a very special evening um, it 's not every night we get a chance to have dinner with Sir Jackie Stewart and ask him any question you like basically that 's the The purpose of this evening is to give you an opportunity to to listen to Sir Jackie and ask questions and there 'll be plenty of time later on for that. Um, the other purpose of this evening is we're basically launching the 2013 uh, Motorsport Magazine Hall of Fame. Uh, we've held three of these before. The fourth one's coming up in February the 25th at the Royal Opera House. And there's a special uh, change for this year where we're, for the first time, holding a charity auction um, in the, to the benefit of the Grand Prix Mechanics Trust, which is uh, the, uh, the charity that Sir Jackie founded 25 years ago, 1987, um, to... Basically benefit racing mechanics who have fallen on hard times um, and for us it's an obvious charity to be associated with you know, because of the the sport that we love and the sport that we we write about every month. So we're delighted to be hosting that auction um, after the Hall of Fame on on, on that evening on February the 25th. Um, The items you see over in the corner there, um, if you get a chance later on, do take a look, because those are the auction auction items that basically um, bids will be put on. There'll be an online element to this, so everyone can bid, and then on the night... Uh, Bonhams will be hosting uh, the auction as well, so hopefully we'll be raising lots of money for a very good cause. Please put your hands together for Sir Jackie Stewart. And now we're going to be joined by two of Jackie's friends, um, two more people to, to fire some questions at. Um, I'd like to welcome on stage uh, my editor-in-chief, Nigel Roebuck, and a man who has uh, or basically lived motor racing for over 50 years now and is one of the most popular characters in any Formula 1 paddock. Joe Ramirez.
2: A man of average height is going to sit beside me.
1: <laughs> um, before I throw open to the floor, I'd just like to talk to Joe very quickly because, Joe, you... You witnessed Jackie firsthand working with Tyrrell in his final championship year. Your memories of that time must be very special. What, what was it like working for Ken Tyrrell and, and, and for Jackie Stewart? I think
3: uh, for sure, he was one of the most experienced um, in my life. I always uh, tap my back by being able to have worked with Ken and Jackie. Ken was the f- best team manager that you can possibly have, like uh, <clears throat> Martin Brundle uh, describing, Ken did not only, didn't not only um, talk to about racing, he talked to about life. He was an absolutely brilliant man. And Jackie, well, there's not much to say about Jackie. I was talking to Paul at the table that one of Jackie's best quality was the fact that uh, most drivers needed a couple of laps to get warm up. Jackie was one from the beginning. If Jackie qualifies seven or five, we'd never worry. We knew he was going to be first on the, on the first lap, and he always was. Yes, and Nigel, um,
1: 1971 was your first season as a journalist, lot of words and lot of deadlines since. Um, but that first season, I know that uh, meeting Jackie was one of the key moments of your young journalistic career, wasn't it? Because um, these days it just wouldn't happen the way it happened to you. Um, no, no, you're right, Damien. It was, uh, my first race was Barcelona
0: in 71, which coincidentally was the first Grand Prix win ever for a Tyrol. Um And I arrived knowing nobody except Rob Walker, with whom I had a very brief conversation at Alton Park a week earlier. Um, and I was extraordinarily lucky. Um, Rob just said, you know, well, if Nigel, if you're going to be doing this, you better meet everybody. And he took me around the paddock and he introduced me that first day, and he introduced me to everybody, including Jackie. And in fact, I, 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 mean, I can remember, I mean, I did sort of pluck up courage and say, um, Jackie, could we, could we do a, 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 an interview sometime? And you immediately said, well, yeah, do, do, you, want, do, you, want, do you want to do it now? And these days, you know, you have to go through 11 PRs seven months in advance for the privilege of getting 12 minutes with somebody. You know, give you banal answers instead of which you gave me about three quarters of an hour, and it was it was my first interview, and it was I've never forgotten it. So,
1: well, this evening is as much about you as it is about um, the people here on stage. It's your opportunity, a uh, golden opportunity, to ask questions to obviously to Sir Jackie Nigel. And to Joe as well. So, let's start, gentlemen at the back there. Uh, please bear with Lily; she's got a few tables to get through with uh, a microphone. Actually, um, can we borrow that one? That's it. That's it. Yeah. Yes, gentleman at the back there.
4: Uh, first of all, apologies. It was my phone that went off, everybody. <laughs> it's now turned off. <laughs> um, first of all, Sir Jackie, I'd like to say I've got a question for you, or. Maybe an open question, but um, I'd say thank you very much for the speech. I really enjoyed it. I'm sure everybody else did. I also enjoyed reading your book, Winning Is Not Enough, um, and I thought it was very interesting to hear you speaking in the way you did and how much it reflected the sort of things you were saying in your book, I think. I suppose one of the questions I've got is, uh, why aren't you back in Scotland? <laughs> I was in
2: Scotland uh, Saturday, Friday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday uh, t- until lunchtime. Um, And it was perfect weather, there had been snow on the ground, I was up shooting, and I've never seen such beauty in my life on any shoot that I've ever been on. It was um, Glen Lyon, and it was magnificent. And I stood there and saying, why am I not here all the time, and the answer in those days when I did come down south, in fact, I went straight from Scotland to Switzerland, was that you had to fly in a Viscount to Heathrow before you could fly anywhere in the world. And even in those days, that was what it took for me to get around. So um, I moved from Scotland with regret, but with also relief. Because at that time Mr. Wilson was in power as Prime Minister and I was paying that year I moved at a very fortunate time just before April the 5th, if you're business people. And that's when the tax year comes in and I moved to Switzerland and from 93% tax as a young racing driver with a young wife and two young children. well. I, if anything had happened to me, Helen would have lost the house. There was no money in the bank yet, properly. And I just, everybody I spoke to said, you know, you're going to have nothing if anything happens to you. So I went to Switzerland. And uh, and you still do it. But in those days, you had the forfeit system. In other words, you went to the canton, you went to the, uh, the federal people, and you. Told them that you were a young and up and coming racing driver, you'd love to live in their country, and there's the forfeit. Instead of paying tax on a percentage, you pay a guaranteed amount of tax for five years. And I hadn't really won anything big by then. Um, and I said, I'm really an up and coming racing driver, and I don't have a lot of money, but I'd like to live in Switzerland. And you know what my tax bill was? 1%.
4: It's an honest answer, anyway.
2: And it was for five years. And that's the only reason I've got any money today. You know what happened after five years? Son of a bitch. They doubled it.
4: Okay. Could I so,
2: Is that a good enough reason yeah. not to be a Glen Lyon? But, but,
4: but the scenery is, uh, scenery is as good if not better in Scotland, being half Scottish myself. But I'll come to the motor racing question if I might. You touched upon it at the start of your chat um, and that is about the penalties for going off the track at the moment. And I personally, I think that that detracts from the final result because you mentioned Alonso going off four times against Mark Webber without penalty and I, I, some of you all know that if you go off track, for example, it used to be the case, I don't know if it's still the case, but at Knickerbrock, at Alton, for example, went straight on in the chicane, I think you either had to stop or you got a 10 second penalty. And my feeling is, is that if you go off the track through a fault or when you're trying to overtake another driver, you should have a drive-through in Formula One. And I think that would sort out quite a lot of the antics we see at the moment. I just wondered if you've got a view on that if you have a a view on it and whether any of the other panel members do and maybe it's something that the motoring press could promote a bit more to make the driving the results fairer
2: well i agree completely Uh, just because i'm not seeing some of those folks over here i thought i would stand up to be another man of average height um i agree completely i think it's wrong that we don't have permanent stewards we have four different stewards at every grand prix One of them being a driver, and that driver is only there because he's paid expenses to get there, he's not paid at all. His wife can't come along with him. And there's no continuity. There's no level of authority that is the same from every weekend or every Grand Prix weekend from one to another. You cannot have that. Even in IndyCar racing, That's nothing like a sophisticated as Formula One they have a permanent steward for safety, and that's uh, Rutherford. Very experienced, won the Indianapolis 500 a few times, and very experienced racing driver. And now he's a man of mature years. He's able to make judgments very clearly and puts penalties in very strongly. We can. I mean, the Tilka tracks, you can walk over them in a racing car without any penalty at all. And we saw it even in Brazil that was happening, and there was no real penalty. So I believe that's got to stop. I don't believe the penalty should endanger the life. It's not as if you're gonna have to put trees in there. The fact is that you don't even see half of it on television because in race control, they've got every camera in every corner, not just one. There's something like 36 or 40 cameras so you cannot get away with anything. It's all recognisable and replayable. So why we cannot have that is beyond my comprehension. Because we can't go on like this, in my opinion. It's not good for the credibility of the sport, and I don't. And it, it encourages drivers. Michael Schumacher goes off the road every single weekend. I've got it logged. Every weekend he goes off the road, but he's clearly very clever. He went off the road on only the corners that he knew that he wasn't going to hit anything. But still he went off the road every weekend. That's wrong. So I agree. Would you like to take over the FIA?
4: (laughs) I'd I'd love to, but uh, I think I would be sort of a bit anti-Max, if I can put it that way. (laughs) And I think he had quite a good safety record having said that.
2: At, At the end of the film, you'll notice the film was produced... By halfwit racing, Max called me a certified halfwit because of my dyslexia. Yeah, I think that's why we took the piss out of him.
4: Yeah. <laughs> I think he fell out of favour of even more so as a result of that comment. But uh, anyway, right. Let's have Thank some you very much.
1: Let's have some more questions. We've got a gentleman in the, the front here, Lily. From here. Thank you, Lily. <laughs> Jackie, it's re- really great to see you here, and, and everybody respects you for the gentleman you are and the driver that you are but I'd like to ask this question to Joe please Joe previously I've um, seen you do a little little chat and uh, you said the mad antics that uh, Berger and Senna got up with throwing the briefcases out of the helicopter and similar things like that you must be able to tell us something about Jackie that's not (laughs) not absolutely
3: I bought him out I bought him out
1: Come on,
0: tell
3: us the tale. I, I think in that, uh, in that age, of in that epoca where they were uh, playing practical jokes between Ron Dennis, Ayrton Senna and Gerhard Berger, uh, it was incredible. You heard about the brisk case of Senna going thrown out of the helicopter, uh, getting into the Monza circuit and, and Gerhard was an absolutely animal you couldn't joke with. He, he had no limit. He used to get into the Mansurorje boat in Monaco, where all the beautiful people were there having lunch and As he come in, he got the basket full of the ferragamo um, and um, whatever you meant, um, shoes in the basket and just threw it in the sea. That was one of the jokes that he used to do he
1: must have done
3: yes, Jackie. <laughs> Uh, I remember a time where um, we were all staying in the Kalami Ranch in um, South Africa for the Grand Prix, one of the n- nicest Grand Prix that we used to have then, and um, Jackie filled up the room of uh, uh, Francois Sebert with frogs. He was a French, <laughs> and uh, he didn't like frogs at all. <laughs> <laughs>
2: A lot of
3: different things in his room, but
1: that one was different. <laughs> Definitely, <laughs> Good stuff. Um, gentleman over there, There's a, sorry.
4: Thank you for picking, man. <laughs> what a privilege to ask Jackie Stewart and Jeremy as a question. Question for, different question for each of you. First question to Jackie What's it like to win 27 Grand Prix, one in three? that you started?
2: What, what was it like to...
4: What's it like to, to, to win to, that many?
2: To win 27 Grand Prix. Pretty easy. <laughs>
4: <laughs> you didn't let me
3: down. You didn't um, let me
2: down. No, you know, what, you never count. I, I never counted, it never entered my mind until I got to 25, which was Fangio's number because Fangio was absolutely my hero in every single way. Man had such style, such dignity, never mind it. I mean, the extraordinary driving talent that he had, which he did so easily and unspectacularly, and did some amazing drives like the Ring, when he beat Hawthorne and Collins, uh, passed them in the last lap and still led by a huge margin. Um, he was my hero. And when it came to winning 24, and suddenly, I won 25, and I actually beat Fangio's record. That was a huge day in my life. And then, because Jimmy was the next one up, and I won that Grand Prix, which I think was the Dutch, I can't remember, I think it was the Dutch Grand Prix, to beat Jimmy's record, which at that time was the most Grand Prix anybody had won. And keep in mind, there was only maybe 11 Grand Prix a year, so it was not all that easy. To, to get that many wins. So uh, that was the only time I ever thought of numbers. I never thought about numbers before. In fact, I don't think I would have been able to tell you how many Grand Prix I had won when I was maybe doing 13, 14, or 15. It really wasn't something that mattered very much. It was, of course, you had to win a Grand Prix. That was the only, win- the only reason you went to the, the circuit. But numbers, uh, you know, now I think Sebastian's at twenty six. Grand Prix victories
0: Well he has But the extraordinary thing is You know A couple of races ago He's already done More Grand Prix Than you did Which is 25 years old So it's That's why really You know Statistics can be made To mean anything Because In the fact there are 20 Grand Prix a year And these days also You know the cars Are pretty well bulletproof And more or less Guaranteed to finish Which You never had So It's wins to starts You need to look at Isn't it uh, It is Absolutely
4: Okay, another question for Joe as well. Very quickly, because Lily wants to grab the microphone. Tell us something about Ayrton Senna. Um, what was the man like? Oh, There's the man, a lot of um, mystique about the uh, man,
3: and some of it justifiably so, but you knew him. What was he like? I think most of us that we have the pleasure of working with Senna we all learn something about him. He was a, an unbelievable character. I never seen anybody that he applied himself so much to the job he did. I think that uncanny will to win that he had, it was never seen in anybody. I think he would have been successful in whatever thing he chose to do in life, whether if he was a sport, politician, businessman, whatever, the guy was Im- unbelievable in everything he did. I mean, it just the small things, like you opened his briefcase, and everything was so methodic arranged, like where he had the, the money of the country he was going, his passport, his uh, document, his race license, everything. He was just so methodic in everything he did, and he never moved a, a fit until he, he was told, this is what you have, this is the plane you're going to have, this is where you're going to have your uh, courtesy car, etc. Mind that did not go too far away from Jackie, because as well, if you see Jackie's briefcase, it's, it's exactly the same. But I think it's something to do with with the, gay that the way that these people act and they, they um, manage their own life that is it's fantastic and i think he was a very good friend he will do anything for anybody that do something for for him he do lots of favors for me he i did lots of favors for 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 him because but that was part of my job um no i think uh, he was one of the greatest people i've ever been involved with if not the greatest
1: Pretty definitive answer. Um, right, we've got. I'll be fair to Lily and just do a couple over this side, and then we'll come over to this side as well. Um, right, uh, chap there in the lilac shirt. hall. Good evening. Uh, question for Sir Jackie. You mentioned earlier about learning sort of driving tips from Jimmy Clark from Grim Hill. following them around. Uh, you also mentioned about how you then pass that on to the Ford engineers, what they should be feeling in the car, etc. Um A hundred people here who probably wish they could drive like a Formula One world champion. I was wondering if you could give us just a five minute driving lesson. When you go around a corner, <laughs> what, what are you feeling? What, what are you trying to achieve at each phase of the corner?
2: Well, um, as I say, I learned a huge amount from Jim Clark, more from Jim with regards to driving technique than, let's say, from Graham. But I also read a lot about it. I like the history of motorsport, and I looked at the history of Fangio, and I saw Fangio, and I've got Fangio's autograph at Silverstone in 1953 and 54. I got these autographs, and I still have the autograph book. Um, smoothness, unhurriedness learning how to know what your own limits are, not overdriving. Overdriving is the same as doing most things. If you overdo things, it really doesn't turn out to be nearly as good as being able to finesse it. So I learned that, you know, if you want a driving lesson, you know, you're driving along the road, let's say you're in motion, you don't take your foot right off the gas pedal take the first millisecond very slowly off and then you can take your foot off the accelerator because the deceleration's begun but you shouldn't feel the deceleration because that's where it starts because the car's speedboating in acceleration whether it's a road car or a racing car So if you take the gas pedal off very gently to begin with, the car settles itself down and then the deceleration occurs, and then you press the brake pedal. You don't press the brake pedal like that. You press the pedal like that. You squeeze it on for the first millisecond, and then you can put the brake pedal on. The same thing happens to the steering wheel. You go up to, you see Michael Schumacher driving, he arrives at a corner, and it's a sharp turn in. Now he, at Ferrari, got all his people to allow that car to have its brain over the front wheels. So that when he turned in, it was an immediate turn in. Jim Clark would never have done that. And neither would Jackie Stewart. The first first induction of steering angle has to be very gentle and very small. And from that point on, you put a little bit more steering angle in but you'd be surprised how little steering angle you need. And then when you get to the apex, you're taking the steering angle off almost immediately, so that the car's freeing itself up. If you keep the steering angle in, you're having to push the front end. So therefore, all of the movements, off the gas pedal, on the brake pedal, off the brake pedal, nobody told me that I could jerk the brake pedal off, by God you can. But if you move it off smoothly, granny in the back doesn't dislocate her vertebrae. And the racing car doesn't get upset by it. The millisecond of that, and then taking steering angle off, you'd be surprised how early you can take steering angle off in a corner. And if you take it off, you're getting momentum. It's just a much easier way to drive, but you've got to be totally synchronised, whether it's a The great thing about driving cars, racing cars or road cars, you're driving a road car every day, you can do that every day, you can do it tonight going home. Be very gentle with the gas pedal, be very gentle with the brake pedal, on both functions on and off, and do the same with the steering wheel, and it's a smoother, nicer ride, you lose... You use less fuel, you use less tires, you you use less brakes. And it's exactly the same in the racing car. You look at the really, really good drivers and you'll see see the hand movements. There are very few hand movements from Vettel right now. There's very few hand movements on the point of view cameras from Alonso. Both those drivers have very little input on the steering wheel of correction because they're doing it in a much quieter, softer and, and smoother way. All the very good drivers in the world have driven like that.
3: One of the very best uh, advice that you gave me if, when I'm driving is not good to be the last of the late breakers when you get to a corner, but it's more important to know when you take your foot off the brake so that the car is not going already sideways and out of control. And I'm afraid I failed you on the Panamericana this year because I braked too late and I had a big spin but uh, I've always remember that most more,
2: hardly anybody knows how to take the brakes off and it's the most it's the easiest thing of all and it j- just gentles the whole experience and you can you can take them off so gently and much earlier than you think when you've got the brakes on the suspension is completely used up the nose is on the ground the back end's up in the air and then you take the brakes off and the nose goes up and you put the power on too quickly and the back end goes down so the speedboat starts. And therefore the speedboat starts there's not the same grip in the front end because not so much of the weight distribution is there. So it's very simple. It's not difficult at all.
1: Joe, on this this point I'd just like to come back to you on this. Um, I was rereading an interview we ran with you a few years ago and you were talking about um, the days when Keke Rosberg and Prost were teammates at McLaren and how at the end of a race, Rosberg's car would be finished, brakes, tyres, completely worn out, whereas Prost was basically ready to do another Grand Prix. Um, You've worked with Jackie, you've worked with Alan. they're compared quite a lot in terms of their, their silky smooth style. I mean, were they similar? oh very much
3: very similar jackie and pros they could drive on the same team and, and they would save a lot of money to the team in brake pads in tires and gears uh, because they were very smooth i mean if you're talking about Keke rosberg i remember in the famous uh, australian grand prix in um, 76 when the the wheel uh, 86 sorry i know it was a six um, Keke Rosberg had a blown up early in the race, and he didn't finish the race. And Alain had a, a puncture early. We changed the tire. We didn't do a very good job. Went back, and he managed to pass everybody and won the race and won the championship. And he had the one. He was the one that less chance had to win in the world championship. Um, Piquet and Mansell had much more points. and At the end of the race, if you look at the, the, the gears on pros, the brakes on pros, he could have done another Grand Prix. Keke's brakes could not possibly do another uh, half a race. I mean, the, the brakes were almost like cigarette paper. It was amazing. It just, uh, I just really couldn't believe it. We used to tell a line if you're going to do a good lap, let us know because we, won't, we will miss it. You know, you. oh wow, was that a quick one? You look at the watch, it was a quick one, but it, it was so smooth. And Jackie was very much like that. It, it, I think it's the smoothness of the racing driver that uh, achieved much more than uh, one that it isn't. Good another
1: question. Um, let's have one from over here this time. Gentleman here.
3: Thank
4: you. Uh, Question to all of you gentlemen, although I guess Mr. Ramirez is gonna have a particular view on this. Uh, Pedro Rodriguez, uh, what are your memories of him and if he lived, Sir Jackie, how much more difficult would the 1971 and 1973 World Championships have been?
2: Uh, My memories of Pedro Rodriguez, uh, he had very attractive girlfriends. I missed the second part of the question. What was it? (laughs) But actually, I don't think it matters. I think I'm going to pass it over to somebody who would understand the second part of the question.
0: Well, uh, Joe knows obviously far more about Pedro, um, you know, than I ever did. I mean, uh, Pedro sadly died during my first uh, first year. That was the first uh, memorial service I ever went to. And in point of fact, at, uh, at Paul Ricard, which was his last Grand Prix, um, I did actually interview Pedro for about 20 minutes. Uh, and then of course the following weekend was the, it was the Norris String. My feeling about Pedro was that he just seemed to me to be... to get better and better and better. Um, and there were some days when, when everybody, anybody who was at brand Satch in 1970, you know at the sports car race, the Voac thousand Ks. Um, it was one of those days when you just you really wonder what everybody else was doing, because Pedro was just on a you know on a, on a, on another level. Um, I think he was he was erratic, but it seemed to me on a, on, a, on a on a great day, Pedro was something. You you tell me what you
3: well very much the same I think in the rain was one of the best drivers we have ever seen and he took a long time to develop like you said he was getting better and better when Ricardo and Pedro were driving together Ricardo was always much quicker than Pedro And, and for Pedro it was very difficult to accept it that his younger brother was always beating him and whenever they drove together it was Pedro the one that probably would go out of out of the track on on testing because he just couldn't do the same test uh, time as as Ricardo but when Ricardo went and he didn't have much the sort of the shadow of his younger brother he got better and better all the time and it was such a shame that he lived so short and who knows whether if he would have gone into a, a better things but i'm sure he would have gone he was it was brilliant it was a, a very much a different driver to Jackie, while well, Jackie was very much involved of getting the sports saved, um, Pedro wasn't one of the ones that, uh, he never sort of followed your, uh, your advice. And Pedro didn't really seem to even think about it, Jackie. I
0: mean, I, uh, I remember, you know, for instance, he, he never could understand why there was any problem with Spa, could he? Oh,
2: he? He won the Belgian Grand Prix one year, didn't he? I think, was I finished second to him, I think? Was that the 16 year? I can't remember. The the March year, maybe. I don't know. But he... um, When he was good, I think he was very good. Um, But he didn't have the consistency, uh, as as Nigel has said. But he was charming. He was a lovely man. I mean, we used to always go to his house. uh, Guadalajara, I think he was, when we went down for the Mexican Grand Prix, right at the beginning, 1965. We all went down there and played football in his house and so forth. It was a... It was a very nice family, and he was a very nice man, a really nice person, and it was a great asset to Grand Prix racing. It was good that we had a Mexican up there. I never knew Ricardo, but I got to know uh, Pedro very well indeed.
3: Yeah, no, we're out of that. Sorry, uh, we're out of that. Uh, I think we lost something that uh, I was talking earlier before. It took more than 30 years to, to have another Mexican driver, and now we got two. So we, we are really spoiled with drivers, and let's hope they both come up, to, come up to scratch, and sooner rather than later, we're going to have a Mexican Grand Prix again.
1: I'm getting the single signal. We've only got one, one question left in terms of time. Uh, so who's it going to be? Um, there's a gentleman down here who's had his hand up for a while. Let's um, give the mic to him. Sorry, that's a long way to go, isn't it? Thank you. Schumacher, he won a lot of Grand Prix. In my view, some of his tactics were bloody dangerous. Um, what, what, what do you think, Jackie? Do you think that uh, he had, he should, history should regard him as being a bit of a superstar or a bit of a crazy guy?
2: I, I think he is a superstar. Because you can't win that number of Grand Prix without being a superstar. But um, it's a strange thing for me to say, and I'm not this is there's nothing personal because I never raced against them, so there's nothing there. But I, for all his success and victories, I would not put him down as a great driver. I put Fangio down as a great driver. I put Clark down as a great driver. I put Prost down as a great driver. Senna was a great driver. But Michael had a, had a window of time where Ferrari were incredibly advantaged, hugely advantaged. And make no mistake, he was really quick. And, and still to this season, really quick on certain occasions. His Monaco Grand Prix qualifying, for example, that took a lot of skill around Monaco when he got pole position. That's quite recent. So he still had the ability... But for, he, he did overdrive and he went off the road far too often. I just think you cannot do that. None of the greats ever did that. Prost hardly ever went off a road. So, uh, and that was when motor racing was much safer that Alan wasn't going off the road. So it wasn't the threat that there was no runoff area. It just wasn't the way to drive a racing car. And he always drove that racing car to a limit that was very marginal. And he was very bright and intelligent because he knew he could take it to over the limit to see if he could do it, but he would choose the corner to do that on where he could go off the road. But Alan Henry and I did the research on it and it was categorically every single weekend he was off the road. It's difficult to uh, to, to accept that, to be a great, great driver. But I have to say that again, he was a well, judged it wasn't an error it was to see if he could go that little bit faster so he was, did stretch the elastic I think probably more than anybody else I know
3: but it was also on the days where we have a spare car so he knew he could go out quicker it's right and he had another car waiting for him
2: yes but uh, like I said I, I think he was a great asset to the sport to come in as a German because he really brought German racing drivers in. I mean, it, it takes an example for that to happen. And and suddenly there's four or five German racing drivers have developed uh, because of the, the, you know, Jochen Maas wasn't a great example. He was a good racing driver, but Schumacher's turned the whole nation around to focus on motor racing. And because of that, there was much more karting going on, there was much more ambition to be a racing driver. So he has contributed very much to the sport. But I never liked his driving technique per se, and it was difficult to, to find the man himself. I, I never found him personally.
3: No, for sure. And I, I know his driving techniques were very doubtful. and. But he won all his championships on an epoca where F- Ferrari was the best car and he didn't have the competition, didn't have the drivers of similar calibre on good cars. So that's how it happened. I, I'm sure he didn't ask for it, but that's how it happened. I, I, I've always been grateful for him when he beat Ayrton Senna's uh, Grand Prix wins, and he said, well, this record doesn't mean anything to me because you all know that if Ayrton was still with us, he would have won a lot of the races that I have won. So this, and I thought that was very good for him to say that.
2: That's that's a good one because if you think about it and you look back the annals of the sport, Michael Schumacher never had a pole position when Ayrton Senna was driving. His first pole position was the first race after Ayrton Senna died. It was Monte Carlo and he was in pole position. And that was the first pole position he ever had. I don't think too, people, too many people remember that. But the very fact was that Senna was no longer there. You know, The king is dead. God save the king. And suddenly he arrived and he dominated. And that was in a Benetton, that wasn't in a Ferrari.
1: I'm, I'm literally going to die on stage in a second, I think. So, Nigel, I know you've written about Michael Schumacher many times and um, you lived through that uh, Ferrari era where we'd turn up on a, a weekend and he'd go quickest in practice, quickest in qualifying and win the race time and time again. What, what are your, How would you sum him up?
0: Yeah, I mean, it was true. I mean I can, I can remember the number of Thursday mornings that I woke up and thought, oh, Christ, I got to the airport. Because he knew before he left home what you were going to go off to, wherever to, you know, and what you were going to see. Uh, I think there will never be a time like that again. You look at the people, the, 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 the people he had together at Ferrari, the unlimited testing, um, the bespoke tires. I mean, I can't really ever see a driver having bespoke tires again. Um, and I also think the other thing about, uh, I'm not belittling Michael, I mean he was a great driver, end of story. I, I loathe his ethics and I, and I always will. And I agree with Jackie, to me that's what keeps him from being regarded as, you know, in the pantheon. Uh, but I think the other thing you have to remember about Michael, probably no one will ever win 91 Grand Prix again. But I also think, frankly, for the majority of the time Michael was in Formula One, the overall standard around him was nothing like what it had been in the 80s and nothing like what it is now. I mean, I think really, you know, the only driver Michael ever really had to worry about was, was, was Mika. Other than that, you know, he was, he was on another level.
1: Well, I think, Nigel, you're probably right. No one will win 91 Grand Prix, but I think there's a young German who's gonna try. Um, and at the age of 25. Well, as
0: long as Adrian keeps going, you know, don't bet against
1: it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I'm afraid we, we've run out of time. We want to leave some time um, for you to have a chance to get some autographs and come and say hello to, to Jackie, to, to Joe, and to Nigel. Um, but um, we'll leave it there, and um, I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. It's been a fantastic evening. Um, please put your hands together for Nigel Roebuck, Joe Ramirez, and Sir Jackie Stewart. And please just feel free to come forward and uh, say hello.
3: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.